I'm John Dauberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2017 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Big Data, Discovering the Value of an Underutilized Asset, is brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank TopCon Agriculture for sponsoring today's episode. From planting to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Scott Shearer says big data has the potential to generate the next big productivity gains in agriculture, which could help no-tillers enhance their bottom line ever further. The Ohio State University Ag Engineer and Precision Specialist will highlight trends affecting the application of big data to agricultural production. He'll also dig into sponsored densification of field machinery, aggregation, storage and analysis of data, rapid infield phenotyping and other disruptive technologies, and governmental and corporate policies that may alter the rate of adoption. Now let's listen as Scott defines the difference between precision agriculture and digital agriculture, or big data, and why that's important. He'll also highlight cutting-edge technologies like rapid phenotyping, Google Glass, the driverless Google car, now Waymo, and interconnected devices that could change the future of farming. Precision agriculture is what we uh, do on a f- maybe a few hundred fields. Digital agriculture is what we're going to do on a few hundred thousand fields. Okay? And so I want to differentiate a little bit between big data and precision agriculture, as maybe many of us are used to it, and big data in terms of digital agriculture, in terms of where we might be headed. Now, in all fairness, I didn't come up with the term. I want to recognize some things that have been going on around the country, and uh, specifically in the state of Iowa. The Ag State Board got together, and it's a group of commodities in the state of Iowa. There are 14 members. Iowa State University is one of them. And they commissioned a study, and they created a task force, and then the study was essentially big data and how it was going to affect production agriculture in the state of Iowa. Okay? They defined this term digital agriculture. And, and one of the unique things is the Hale Group, which was a group of consultants, did this study. The top two recommendations out of that study, that study has been published on the, on the web, by the way, and I think many of the commodity groups have published the study. But two of the top recommendations is first thing is we need education. We need producers to understand what's going on in the data space. Reality of it is when, when you click I agree or I accept and your data goes to the cloud, Do you really have an appreciation for who's going to have access to your data and who's going to use your data and what they're going to use it for? And and that's one of the big questions today as as we talk about big data and agriculture. So anyways, this is their definition. 
Digital agriculture, a family of activities related to farming that includes precision agriculture, prescription agriculture, and enterprise agriculture, and depends on the collection, use, coordination, and analysis of data from a multiplicity of sources with the goal of optimizing productivity, profitability, and sustainability of farming operations. I think agriculture is much more descriptive of the digital, than digital farm. Digital agriculture is more descriptive than the digital farm because big data outside of the farm really has a lot to do with a lot of products and services that are going to be provided to you in the future. And I think big data is going to drive development of many of those. I always talk about the GAP report. This is uh, getting a bit dated now since we're into 2015, but in 2013 the GAP report came out, number of corporations on the right-hand side. But what they were suggesting is we're going to see a growth in the population, probably about 2 billion people between now and about 2050. But more importantly, food production is going to have to double. Population of the earth is about 7.2 billion, and they expect it to go to about 9 billion. And I'm telling you, food production has to double. Okay? Well, you recognize that a number of people on earth are, are not nourished appropriately. But the other thing is, is, as economies grow, we're going to see a transition from principally plant protein-based diets to diets that are heavy in animal protein. Okay? And I'm talking to agriculturalists, so you realize you feed your animals plants, and you've got to feed them about six times the amount of protein to produce a unit of animal protein. So as societies develop, they gain wealth, there's affluence, dietary preferences change. And right now, as I understand, the uh, prospects for animal agriculture are, are pretty staggering in some respects in terms of looking at the out years and moving ahead. Obviously, you've got to feed those animals, so a lot of what you're doing is going to be important as well. There's the little statistic down here in the corner. In 40 years, agricultural output will need to increase by 100%. I've been looking at a lot of things. There's a lot of venture capital now chasing agriculture. Now, I think a lot of it had to do with $7 corn, and obviously we have corn prices now that are a little bit closer to maybe what, be, what may be normal in some respects. Now, I know all of you'd like to see them back at $7. That's not lost on me, okay? But we have a number of competing factors as we look around the world as well. Technologies that will shape the future of agriculture. This is where the part of the presentation gets pretty far out, okay? This, I'm really on the edge on this one, so. Google Glass. I always talk about Google Glass because it's coming along at the right point in my life. Okay, Google Glass, what is it? It's a wearable that's connected to the internet. A wearable device that's connected to the internet. <laughs> Who cares? Well, the neat thing about Google Glass is, up in the uh, upper right-hand corner of the glass, left-hand side of the, the image there, there's a little monitor, okay? And voice commands and a lot of other things, you have internet access, and by the way, Google Glass pretty much sees what you see. The neat thing is there's facial recognition software now. So I can look out in the audience, and if I'm wearing Google Glass, which I'm not right now, I know your name through facial recognition. By the way, I have access to the public record, so I know that you ran a stoplight last week and got a ticket. Maybe I know any property transfers and a lot of other things going on. But I'm just trying to get you familiar with what's going on in terms of wearable devices and what it's going to mean to agriculture. Now, in this case, there's a farmer wearing Google Glass, and think about that individual going out into the field and scouting their crops. Automatically now, they're connected, perhaps, to experts that know about some of the problems they're having with their crop, and so maybe that circle, that feedback loop, if you will, is shortened quite a bit, and maybe we increase the expertise available to that individual in helping them make decisions about crop management. I don't know where it's headed, but possibilities there. Here's a neat device. A company by the name of Topcon built this thing. It's the IP-S2HD. <laughs> what the heck is that? 
It's an imaging device that sits in the back end of a pickup truck. The neat thing is Topcon sold 1,500 of these to a company by the name of Google. 1,500 of these at about a quarter of a million dollars a piece. Okay, what Google do with them? Google created Street View. They created a 3D representation of the world. Wow. These are laser, LiDAR, if you will, ranging devices that give you point clouds. The neat thing is, if you had your garage door open when this thing came down the street, I know what's in your garage now. Now, they want to protect your identity, so they fuzz out the license plate numbers now of your vehicles. Okay? Kind of neat. But think about the application of this in agriculture. Okay? We talk about rapid phenotyping that the geneticists are using for creating new hybrids. But think about rapid phenotyping in the field and what you may do to your actively growing crop. We have something like this going down between the rows of corn and we're recreating 3D images of the plant and how it's doing. We can begin to make management decisions that change quite a bit. Watson. Watson's a, what, does anybody know anything about Watson? Watson and a computer, a computer application, if you will. Does anybody remember what Watson did back in 2011 that was noteworthy? On Jeopardy, and beat, by the way, some of the best Jeopardy players ever. Watson is a computer application that reads everything that's being published. You go to the doctor right now, and that doctor, MD if you will, diagnoses your illness using about 20% of the information available to the medical community. Okay? If Watson's doing the diagnostics, Watson's using 100% of that information that's available. All right, now, why do I like Watson so well? Well, think about it. I could have the world's best plant pathologist at my fingertips if I'm an agricultural producer. Now, there's a ways to go before we start using Watson on the farm, but the reality of it is Watson reads everything that's printed or published. It's a great facility, and now that information is stored where it can be accessed and queried to answer the questions that you might have as producers. Google Car. <laughs> I like telling this story. Um, a couple machinery company engineers, agricultural equipment company engineers, went out to see the Google engineers. And the Google engineers opened up the back doors and said, hey, hop in, we'll take you for a ride. Google engineers got in the front seat, two machinery company engineers got in the back seat. The car goes off down the road. Google engineers are kind of talking to one another. They pull over, go up, get out, open the trunk up. They're fiddling around. They said something wasn't quite right. They slam the trunk lid and the car takes off. Two engineers from the machinery company in the back seat. <laughs> goes down the road, accelerates about 45 miles an hour. And just then, a gentleman steps off the curb and walks in a crosswalk in front of the car. The two engineers sitting in the back seat, they don't know what the heck to do. Car slows down, stops. The human passes in front of the car. The car goes on down the street, makes a U-turn, goes back to where the Google engineers are. They're standing there laughing. <laughs> Machinery company engineers aren't quite as amused. The nature of the conversation is we found that this is the best way to demonstrate to people the capabilities of the Google car. My understanding is Google Car is about 500,000 miles now without an accident and it's permitted to operate on, on California public thoroughfares, okay? And we have agricultural machinery companies now concerned about liability associated with autonomous operation of tractors and cornfields. Which one do you think carries a little bit more risk or liability with it, okay? All I'm trying to get you to think about is the acceptance of automation. By the way, Google Car may actually allow us to reduce spending on our roadways because we can get higher traffic volumes when you don't have humans messing up the system. Hmm. All right, this is a neat graphic. I kind of got to explain it, but internet-connected devices, internet of everything. 
You look across the bottom, the red one's personal computers. This goes from about 2004 out to 2018, a projection. And you notice there's about 2 billion computers, desktop computers connected to the internet. If you look at the next one, smartphones, everybody's got a smartphone, right? That's the way I'm connected to the world. That's the way I'm connected to my family now. We text each other. We don't call. We don't talk. We don't see each other face to face. We text, okay? Smartphones, you get up to about 4 billion internet, 5 billion internet connected devices. Tablets, I got a tablet. I got my iPad, okay, because I need it because I have field view, right? So I got to have my iPad Well, because I can't operate my tractor or farm if I don't have my iPad. So there's a bunch of tablets. That's orange. Then there's this Internet of Things. I'll come back to that. Smart TVs. My TV's connected to the Internet. What about yours? Okay, good. And then we go to the wearables. The wearables are Google Glass, the wristwatches, and things like that, okay? A lot of things are changing in terms of technology. But if you look at that, there's about, what, 18 billion internet-connected devices by the year 2018? And 9 billion, well, I'm sorry, 7 billion people on the planet? Let's see, 18 divided by 7. That's about 2.5 internet-connected devices for every human being on Earth. I want to go back. Internet of Things, okay? <laughs> I have a graduate student. He comes in one day and he goes, Dr. Shear, look at my new app. He gets his iPhone or smartphone out. It wasn't an iPhone, it was an Android. He goes, look at this, it has a little thermostat on it. He goes, watch. He changes the temperature in his house off campus from 70 degrees down to about 60. And he goes, my brother's going to be really mad at me. <laughs> I'm in control now. And I was telling that story in class one day, and I didn't realize it, but his brother was sitting there, okay? Internet-connected devices. Tractors are internet-connected devices today. We move data from tractors to the cloud and from the cloud back to the tractor. Okay? If you remember, a few years back, we had something called light squared. Remember that? Big discussion because it was going to render all GPS receivers useless. And agriculture banded together and made the biggest mistake they've ever made in the history of agriculture. They killed light squared. <gasps> Dr. Shear, you can't say that. I bought that GPS receiver, it had to be good. Well, the reality of it is what they killed was broadband internet access in rural America. And if you're looking at the age of big data and automation, what you want is internet-connected tractors. Right now, we're limited to cell phone modem technology, which has a bandwidth, but not nearly what we might want or desire as we move forward. So think about that a little bit. Internet-connected devices, they're gonna grow substantially. Market forces that will shape the future of agriculture. Anybody know Vanny Harry? V-A-N-I-H-A-R-I. <laughs> I love doing this. Okay, you're all agricultural producers, but you don't know who Vanny Harry is. Does anybody, any, anybody in the room know who Vanny Harry is? <laughs> okay, one person, good. What's she go by on the internet? Chow babe? I think it's food babe. Yeah, she goes, her internet, <laughs> her internet name is food babe. <laughs> I think some, somehow Oprah Winfrey or... Uh, Dr. Oz or some people behind her. But anyways, here's a lady that reads food labels and then blogs about what's contained in the food products. She's taken on Anheuser-Busch in terms of preservatives and beer. Anheuser-Busch has responded. She's taken on Subway in terms of preservatives in bread. Subway has responded. She's proud of the fact that she's forcing corporate America to change the way they process foods. What's this mean to you as producers? I think it's pretty substantial. Here's a lady on the internet, very talented young lady, I'm not going to take anything away from her, 
but she's changing corporate America and how people view food and things that are added to foods. State of Ohio, we have a problem right now, Grand Lake St. Mary's and Lake Erie with harmful algal blooms. I'll remind people, late last summer, Toledo, Ohio, the water utility told the people, 400,000 residents, don't drink the water, don't bathe with the water, and don't cook with the water. That went on for two and a half days. That problem is being caused in Ohio by our best account, a pound and a half of dissolved reactive phosphorus moving off of each acre of land in the watersheds feeding the Western Lake Erie Basin. Pound and a half dissolved reactive phosphorus per acre per year. Do you think the residents of Toledo are gonna to stand by for continuing problems with harmful algal blooms in Lake Erie? By the way, this microcystin and, and essentially a neurotoxin coming from the blue-green algae that is compromising human health. We'll rejoin Scott's exciting viewpoint into the future of agriculture in a moment. But I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. From planting to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, Topcon Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how Topcon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Now let's get back to Scott Shear's discussion about big drivers in precision agriculture, this time focusing in on current ag technologies like multi-hybrid planters, prescription seeding, downforce control, and data transfer from tractor to the cloud and the impact they can make on challenges farmers face such as choosing hybrids, preventing skips at planning, and improving the efficiency of field operations like planting or spraying. Current precision ag technologies, I like talking about these. NSF defies, defines big data as Large, diverse, complex, longitudinal and or distributed data sets generated from instruments, sensors, internet transactions, email, video, click streams, and or all other digital sources. Whenever I get on my web browser, I own a 2004 Dodge pickup truck with a Cummins diesel engine, but whenever I get on, on my web browser, you need that when I drive back and forth to school each day because I have a really heavy computer bag, okay? <laughs> but... <laughs> My, my truck has over 200,000 miles on it, and I need parts occasionally for it, and I go on the internet to get my parts. But now whenever I log on <laughs> and I bring up my internet browser, I get all kinds of nice ads for Dodge truck parts. How do they know that I'm looking for Dodge truck parts? Well, they're keeping track of everything I do, especially Amazon.com. They're really good at it, okay? What is value big data if we don't produce actionable information? That's what we're going to talk about in agriculture because until somebody gives you information that allows you to make a different management decision that improves your profitability or bottom line, big data has no value to you, okay? In fact, it might be a cost to your operation because you're tending to accumulate it or, or archive it. Here's one of the things that I love talking about. Entrepreneurship in this country is still alive, and innovation comes from a lot of 
small companies, mom and pop operations, the Sauter family out of Illinois, precision planting, changed the way the machinery industry looks at planting. How'd they do it? Well, there were already sensors on the planter that would count seeds as they dropped into the furrow. I think what Precision Planning did with their 2020 Seed Sense Monitor is they allowed the producer to visualize it in the cab of their tractor. Not after planting season, while they were planting, when you had an opportunity to correct any mistakes. What happened? Well, these other companies tended to follow suit. You had, uh, well, let's see, here's, there's a John Deere equivalent, there's Trimbles, and I think this is Ag Leaders. All of a sudden, everybody else is in the same business helping farmers visualize the accuracy of planting, okay? Then field view comes along and now I got a map that shows me where I had doubles or where I missed seeds. And you know, there's something about that visual feedback that changes people's attitude about what the quality planting is. Before we probably used to accept 92, 93% seed drop rate. Now most of you, it's gotta be 99.9% .9 accurate, okay? It's changed the, uh, the dialogue, if you will, in terms of what's accurate planting. Downforce control. Everybody's talking about downforce control now. Well, one of the things I like looking at is that map. Here's the uh, actual downforce on the unit, but here's what you had to apply to it to get it to go into the ground. That starts telling me something about the soil than soil structure. I have information, I'm able to visualize things that I never really looked at before, okay? I don't know, maybe the grain trucks got parked over here or something and the grain carts traffic that area, I'm not sure. Here's an interesting one. Genetics companies are now selling planters. Stein in Iowa selling John Deere planters. Beck's in Indiana now selling Kinsey planters. Does that make any sense to you in some respects? Why are they selling them? Well, if you talk to the Beck's people, they've been doing studies now for three years at about 13 different locations, but they've shown a positive benefit of about $55, $60 an acre for planting multiple hybrids within a field. In this case, two. As you go across the field, you switch between one hybrid to the other, maybe an offensive to a defensive, maybe you plant the defensive varieties in the areas that maybe have gravel underneath them or kind of droughty soils. When you get into the other areas where there's better, better moisture storage capacity, you plant the offensive varieties. That in and of itself helps you generate more income. Have you really changed your input cost any? No, you're still buying the same amount of seed corn. You're just matching your hybrids to the soil landscape. By the way, it's been suggested to me by some people close to Monsanto that maybe at some point in the future we're planting as many as five hybrids within one field. Polyculture, okay? Here's one. I was up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Clean Seed, pretty interesting company. They've developed a device now. And uh, these row units right here, you see a lot of tubes coming into them. What they're able to do is meter up to six products, six different products simultaneously into the furrow at planting time. Now they seed a lot of small grains in Canada, but I'm thinking about how we use this in corn and soybean production. There's some seed treatments, maybe uh, when we look at nematode control that we don't want to apply to the entire field because we can't afford it, but it does make sense to apply it in some areas. But this is where we're moving. We talk about prescription agriculture. This is true prescription agriculture when you're managing that many products in terms of planting. This is out of Oklahoma State University. Randy Taylor and Bill Ron. Bill Ron's the agronomist, Randy Taylor the engineer. They found, and this is their data, that when you put uh, seeds in the furrow, and that furrow on the left-hand side, they just left the closing wheels off. 
Then they had students go out there and they hand-placed individual seeds of corn with the axis of the seed normal to the row. Okay? The resultant that they came up with is when the corn plants emerged, the leaves were normal to the row. They were beginning to control the canopy or the architecture of the plant canopy. Now, I realize Oklahoma's a bit of an arid region, at least more so than, than back here in the middle part of the Corn Belt. But on some of their plots, they saw a 15% increase in yield by orienting the seed. By the way, our own Peter Thomason at Ohio State University tells me if we can put the embryo side of the seed down into the furrow, we can get much more uniform emergence. I'll credit Bob Recker with this. Bob Recker's sitting over here, but uh, I like these deer camera approach, so we put them out and we're watching corn plants grow. Time-lapse photography. It's working really well. We're going to watch bridges rust next. But anyways, um, what I want to draw your attention to is right down here we have a late emerger and we have a missing plant there. And the reality of it is, and what I like is, is some of what Bob's doing in Iowa, but he's looking at that plant-to-plant -plant variation. When I say we did this, what I really mean is the student. The student. Whenever I said we, insert students, okay? Um, we went out and we hand-harvested, the students hand-harvested 3,500 years of corn. We preserved the location of every year that we harvested. And then we went back and we assembled them in the laboratory on the floor. And this is the way, it's a pretty good yield year. I think uh, the, the, this test plot or whatever went about 225 bushels. But, you know, the agronomists tell me, and I, I agree with them, the plants on either side of the missing plant right here will make up by the ears being proportionally bigger. The problem is, even though these ears are slightly larger, it didn't make up for the grain loss from this one ear right here. Okay? So skips all of a sudden take on kind of a new meaning. You know, one in every 20 plants, that's your profit margin for some producers. Okay? Over here, we had a later merger. It was planted kind of close, but you saw what happened to that ear as well. Um, you know, some other people, and you know, some of this comes from precision planting as well, are talking about late emergers 48 hours later. Maybe it's considered a weed. Maybe 72 hours later, whatever it is, that plant could actually go into a mode where it robs nutrients and water from the other plants and actually reduces your yield without producing anything. Okay? And I'll defer to the agronomist on this because I'm an engineer, but I also know enough that, that some of the dialogue, at least I've been hearing, may have some validity. Okay? Moving data from the tractor to the cloud, John Deere, myjohndeere.com, probably one of the first people in it and, and longest, best experience, connected farm, Trimble. We have Slingshot with Raven, and we have a whole host of these other devices coming out now, Farm Mobile. I like this Farm Mobile, okay, because <laughs> I have this uh, technological deficit disorder, but they sent this to me in a box, and I was able to install it and get it to work, okay? N no instructions. Had little suction cups on it, I stuck it to the window. I found the little plug that went in the diagnostic port. It was working. Now, precision ag technologies are really great and there's a lot of them out there, but that was one of those where I didn't really have to think any. And uh, all of a sudden, my tractor's connected to the internet. And uh, well, the graduate student I work with did have to download the iPad app. But after that, we, we could track the tractor and everything that was going on. I wanna talk about this a little bit. Some of the data coming off the tractor. Um, this is from the Farm Science Review. Molly Karen Agricultural Center, uh, west of uh, Columbus, Ohio. Um, I, I tell Chuck Gamble, the Farm Science Review Manager, I know more about what's going on at the Farm Science Review than he does. <laughs> he says, no, you don't, and I say, yes, I do, because I got this data. I got the fuel use rate data from the tractors, and left-hand side is planting, 
right-hand side is the ammonia, anhydrous ammonia applicator. And uh, I know that the tractor sat in the field for an hour and a half without moving while the engine was idling. Ran out of anhydrous and somebody didn't think to get a second tank and bring it to the field. The other thing that happened in that right-hand side is those two, it's a bimodal distribution, but if you look at the, kind of like the, the hump on the right versus the hump on the left, the hump on the left is when the tractor is sitting there idling or the tool's out of the ground and it's turning at the end of the field. What I really want is I want to make that hump on the right as big as possible because I know the tool's engaged with the ground and I'm actually putting on anhydrous, okay? I can begin looking at these signatures and I can tell what the operator's been doing in the field. And this is where the value from big data is going to come from. Um, one of my colleagues out at Iowa State University, Matt Darr, was working with, uh, I think, uh, was it DuPont? There's, they have a cellulosic ethanol plant going in in Nevada, Iowa, and this year they harvested about 50,000 acres of corn stover, and they had, I think, 24, 25 baling crews, okay? Large rectangular balers. And the interesting thing is they, they'd educated all these crews about what to do. They had some crews that were getting about 450 to 500 large rectangular bales per day, and they had some that were down around 200, 250. Brought them all back in, talked about the importance of paying attention to productivity and things like that, sent them all back out, same thing happened. Then what they did next was they had devices to move data from those tractors to a central location. They created a map showing what all the baling crews were doing real time during the day. Within about three or four days, all of a sudden those crews doing 200, 250 bales a day were up at 400 and 450 bales a day. It was the ability to visualize what was going on in the field that allowed them to change the cost of producing corn stover for that cellulosic ethanol plant. Okay? How big's too big? <laughs> I like this image for a couple different reasons. Uh, Bauer built toolbar, obviously, and John Deere's marketing, a 48 row planter, 120 foot wide. Two or three things about that picture that I think are some take home messages. First of all, the planter doesn't have row markers on it. Why doesn't it? It's cheaper to put auto steer on the tractor. We have technology being substituted for iron today. Okay? Think about 60-foot row markers and when you catch them in the fence row. Really, I think the engineers are more concerned about what happens to the planter frame. Okay? There's a cost there for replacing the marker arm, but a lot of torque on that thing may, may change things. Now, the other thing is, there's a question about how big a tractor you need to pull that planter. One of the issues is when you fold it up, that tractor has to be able to handle the axle load. So necessarily, you might need a bigger tractor just to move it up and down the public thoroughfares because of the rear axle load than what you might need when the thing is operating in the field. So again, I'm just trying to get you to think about big equipment and where things may be headed in some respects. Here's a map that we generated of spray application from a modern agricultural sprayer. Field's a bit cut up. There's green areas in there. The green areas are where we applied from that sprayer, 90-foot booms, to within 10% of the targeted application rate. That was approximately 30% of the field. Now, if you speed up or slow down when you go in and out of waterways, the spray rate controller takes a bit of time to catch up. You're moving 12, 15 miles an hour, you've gone a bit of distance. And so if we look right here, going in and out of these waterways, we have errors on either side of the ditch. It's common. Down here, <laughs> gotta be careful here, there were utility poles going through there and the operator, happened to be a recent high school graduate, decided the best way to spray around those telephone poles is spray around them in a circle. And you know the off rate on the inside of the boom versus the outside of the boom, okay? When we look at this map, 30% of the field was sprayed within 10% of the target rate. 
Now, that's part of the problem with big equipment. There's some technologies out there today, pulse width modulation on spray nozzles, great technology. Gonna solve some of this problem, but not everybody has it, obviously. The other thing I'm gonna say about this is if I wanted to apportion blame, probably a third of the blame goes to the manufacturer of the sprayer, a third of it goes to the person that set it up and put it in the field, and a third of it goes to the operator operating in the field. Two-thirds of the off-rate application in this map could be tied back to the human being. The problem is the person operating the sprayer never saw the map. They didn't know how bad a job they were doing. So I go back to this issue, we gotta be able to visualize what's going on, and in part, that's big data. The other thing is this really messes with prescription maps in some respects, especially when you look at fertility and a number of other things. We got a nice uniform aligned grid. That's the kind of application that we got laid over that grid in some respects. And so you gotta think about what's going on there. I like showing this, I'm not picking on John Deere. When I say we did this, I had a student that went back and got all the data out of the Nebraska tractor test for John Deere tractors. I just used John Deere because they've been producing tractors a long time, from 1920 all the way up to 2010. I put those envelopes on there, left-hand side, kind of the gold-colored envelope. It kind of shows us the increase in ballasted tractor mass, y-axis ballasted tractor mass, x-axis is obviously the year the tractor was tested. But 1960, what happens? That takes off. It takes off because we've gone from spark ignition engines principally to compression ignition or diesel engines, okay? What I want you to pay attention to is the slope of that line. The slope of that line is about 900 pounds per year gain in ballasted tractor mass for the largest tractors tested at the University of Nebraska. Now, I've watched ARS and I've concluded we no longer have a soil compaction problem in the US, okay? ARS had the National Soil Dynamics Research Laboratory at Auburn, Alabama, that was focused on compaction issues back in the 60s and 70s. Remember when we had the massive 125 horse tractors? Yeah, well they've changed their mission, they're looking at soil carbon today, so my conclusion is ARS knows what's going on, USDA knows what's going on in agriculture in the US, so we no longer have a compaction problem, right? Would you agree with me? Maybe not, okay. Um, this was at the Farm Science Review a couple years ago, a T9, New Holland. Well, it was a wheel tractor, they put it on tracks. That's a, that's a better situation, but 685 horse tractor, we know that it takes 110 to 120 pounds of ballasted tractor mass for, for each engine horsepower. We could be talking an 80,000 pound tractor. I wanna tell you about another situation. The state of Wisconsin, as I understand, recently passed a law that said that anything connected together, ag equipment wise, on a public thoroughfare cannot exceed 92,000 pounds gross vehicle weight. So I got my quad track out there, 80,000 pounds if I ballasted it correctly. Maybe I get by a little bit less, 75,000. I can go to 112,000 pound gross vehicle weight. That leaves me a little bit left over for the implement and the product cart, right? But think about where we're headed in some respects. By the way, the Europeans have a three meter transport limitation width, part of the reason why we have track tractors now. I talk to the manufacturers and I ask them about what uh, the difference between a class seven, class eight, and class nine combine is. And, and they look at me and they go, Dr. Shearer, class nine is bigger than a class eight. <laughs> I understand that. I, I didn't really know what was going on. I, you know, I was thinking it was harvest capacity and a lot of other things. I look at the clean grain elevator size and a lot of other things like that. But what it boiled down to is when we plotted this, and this was all the current model combines, I think, for the year 2011. And what I found out is horsepower has as much to do with this as anything else. So I went ahead and projected class 10 machines, 565 horse, class 11 machines, 630, class 12 machines, 693, class machines, 757. Class 13, I'm sorry. Um, by the way, I found this video on the internet of a machine, notice how I didn't put color in that slide, but a machine that somebody's building or at least working on 
that may be broaching the class nine barrier. I'm just wondering where it all ends, okay? What's the gross vehicle weight, especially if it's got a grain tank on it and you get it fully loaded? We were looking at compaction. We put together a model doing some work with Case IH, and what we're trying to do is uh, project yield impact. Randall Reader's around today. Randall's been doing some studies up in northwest Ohio on lake bed soils, looking at compacted soils and the yield deficit year after year. And so we put that data into our model, and we began doing some projections. This is, uh, I like this. I'm not picking on Balzer, but Balzer makes 2,000 bushel grain cart. So do a lot of other companies. Well, not a lot of other companies make it now. But we looked on a wet soil underneath the trafficked areas. You get about 25% reduction in yield. This assumes a 200 bushel of corn yield under no-till production. And by the way, we've went back and looked at this model several times using it in other applications, and it seems to give us reasonable, although not perfect, results. Okay. I was with Unverfirth, and I asked the, the marketing manager, I said, why do you guys build a 2,000 bushel grain cart? And he goes, Dr. Shear, if you're going to drive all the way to the road, you've got to be able to load two tractor trailers. I'm going, well, most of the farmers I know, you probably need a 2,500 bushel grain cart. So nobody overloads their trucks, do they? I always wonder why they make the sides on those, those hopper trailers about six inches taller than they need to be, okay? And then I was unloading the grain cart, this year in terms of some of our field studies, and I found out why. That's a lot of grain to control. I had to slow the tractor down and, and slow that window down on the, anyways. Manure applicator, some big problems there. By the way, we looked at field average, what the yield impact is, and we looked under the trafficked areas. There may be times where no-tillers feel like they're out of options when it comes to improving the efficiency of their farm operation. But one of the most important points Scott Shearer makes, I think, is the opportunity of using technologies already available, such as prescription farming, to get a better feeling of what's going on in your fields and help you measure what you're managing. Speaking of no-tilling more profitably, the upcoming National No-Tillage Conference to be held January 9th through 12th, 2018 in Louisville, Kentucky, will offer growers numerous opportunities to improve the effectiveness and profitability of their no-till operation. No-tiller Russell Hedrick will talk about his system's approach to farming of no-till practices, cover crops, livestock, and precision technology, and how it helped him raise 300 bushel corn on just 140 units of nitrogen. And Kentucky no-tiller Rick Murdoch will kick off our conference discussing his one-acre learning block approach to testing different corn hybrid populations, his record-based spoon-feeding of nitrogen, and special software used to track crop and expense records that help him raise corn, wheat, and double crop soybeans more profitably. Featuring top experts with worldwide experience, the National No-Tillage Conference includes more than 100 money-making sessions and unlimited networking with the best of the no-till community. Register today for a discounted rate of just $329 at www.notillconference.com. Now let's return to the program and listen as Scott Shearer shares the data-driven decisions that are beginning to drive agriculture, including the technologies that are making that happen and the security and access issues with big data that farmers will need to deal with and what potential solutions there could be to address that challenge. Data-driven decisions, future digital agriculture. I like using this one. This is a number that uh, myself and a couple of other colleagues have put together. We believe right now in North America that farmers are generating about a half a kilobyte of data per corn plant per season. 
Now, whether or not they're capturing it or using any of it, that's a whole different story, but they're generating it. That's the important thing. When you look at a, a John Deere 8R or Case IH Magnum, we know that that's generating, that machine's generating somewhere around eight to 900 messages a second. And those messages have everything to do with how that machine's been operated. Some of them are duplicates, and that's okay. But the other thing is, a lot of that data is never captured or fed back into our system to look at what went on in the field. And that's what a lot of people are talking about when they talk about telematics and big data, is moving some of that data to the internet. I think the real interesting one, I got the wrong slide up here, but we look at unmanned aerial systems, remote sensing imagery, I think we increase that data by tenfold. I think we go to five kilobytes per corn plant per growing season. And I'll show you some examples of where I think that's going to happen, too. Um, FAA grants UAS exemptions to four companies. This is under Section 333. Now, they still got to get COAs, but now they can fly commercially. The companies, Trimble Navigation, VDOS Global, I don't know anything about them, Clayco, don't know much about them, and Wolpert, which is an engineering services company out of Ohio. This is some imagery that Wolpert collected for us. Two centimeter horizontal resolution imagery. That's a cornfield, and it's, we're looking at one spectral band. But man, you start seeing a lot of, oh, that was the Farm Science Review, and Nate, the guy operating the tractor, missed that area. Remember Chuck? I know more about the Farm Science Review than he does. Here's some, <laughs> this is kind of interesting. We had students that went out. <laughs> Here's the neat part. Their devices right here are iPads and they're internet connected. And we had them out there basically uh, looking at crop emergence or plant emergence. And they were marking the location of every plant that emerged and on the day it emerged and things like that. We know that when they did a 50-foot strip, they had to upload a file to the internet. <laughs> so I sat back in my office and I could watch about every five minutes a file got uploaded. And if it didn't, <laughs> I called them on the cell phone to find out what was going on. <laughs> they're 30 miles away, by the way. Okay? But anyways, we have a student now. Oh, we had the maps from precision planting, so we know where we had skips or doubles. We uh, collect, took that imagery and began analyzing, and then we're able to create these peaks right here that had to do with essentially the plants that emerged and the heights of the plants. So we know what we put in the ground, we know what came out of the ground, and we know the rate it came out at. Okay? All that from two centimeter horizontal resolution imagery. Now that's a lot of data the other thing is, though, I'm thinking we sample the field a few locations and we can, we can make some management decisions. I like talking about in, in fields, the neat thing about remote sensed imagery, we can differentiate naturally occurring variation from man introduced. I think this is an herbicide problem. I think the sprayer stopped in the field. I think there might have been carryover from corn to beans, I'm guessing, okay? Would you agree with me or not? Oh, here's one, this is Farm Science Review. What do you think happened, this is cornfield. What do you think happened in here? Nate, Nate ran out of nitrogen. I wonder what that cost Farm Science Review. Oh, well. Um, we did a little study, compaction. We had tracks versus wheels. Everybody's interested in that. We had the Air, well, the Air Force Research Laboratory. We're working with them, but Wolpert was flying the stuff for us. And uh, in the north part, on the north side of the driveway, we have corn. On the south side of the driveway, we had... Uh, we had soybeans. Can you tell which direction we drove the grain carts? That was the machine data. That's the remote sensed imagery. Is there an impact on crop growth, crop vigor from the grain cart trafficking events? What I'm trying to get people to think about is we marry machine data now with remote sensed imagery and it begins telling us a lot about what's going on in that field. By the way, one was a 1200 bushel grain cart, the other one was a 1300 bushel grain cart, but Made me a believer. Okay. 
Here's another field. What's going on in this field? This is corn. Variety trial. There's two different hybrids in the field, right? Everybody agree? Okay, you're going to love the next one. Um, you know, they're making hyperspectral cameras now, about a pound, pound and a half. You can fly on an unmanned aerial system. 200 spectral bands for about $50,000. Anybody, anybody want one of these? I'll, I'll hook you up. All I'm saying is these things used to be half-million-dollar cameras. The cost has come down to around $50,000. I don't know anything about the quality of them, but there's multiple companies out there building the smaller cameras. Now, what are we going to use it for? Well, we planted 16 hybrids of corn in the field. We had students go out, and they collected reflectance data from the leaves on the corn plant. Okay, and so this is four different times, and we had 16 hybrids, and so you can kind of see in here that there's a little bit of differentiation from some of those corn hybrids, not a lot, okay? Went into the reproductive cycle, this is tassel measurements, and over here is silk measurements. I think there's enough information in the spectral and temporal and spatial signatures for me to begin to differentiate between hybrids that were planted in fields. Any value in that? In-field prototyping, I talked about this before. Continuing tread towards automation. This is where I kind of go off the rails in some respect. A lot of neat systems out there. We got Deere's machine sink, okay? Grain cart pulls up along combine. The combine takes control of the grain cart during the unloading operation. Great, great idea, great concept, okay? And other people have this too. I mean, it's not one company. Um, I'm gonna back up here, sorry. Right here, we have uh, Agco Guide Connect. We have an operator in the front tractor, no operator in the back tractor. This person is essentially overseeing two pieces of equipment in the same field. Kind of a neat concept. Here's where I think things are headed. And I use Baxter to kind of tell you about what I think is going on, okay? Baxter is a, uh, a two-arm robot, if you will. Retails for, as I understand, $22,000. Has an expected life of three years. You know, since 2008, we've had tremendous problems in terms of our economy, but we know that our manufacturing base has returned quite a bit. It did that without employing additional people. What happened? We know that U.S. manufacturers increased their spending on automation 30 to 40 percent in that time frame, okay? We had a jobless recovery. We automated a lot of those processes we used to use human workers for. Now, think about globally, politically stable countries and the cost of labor. The cost of operating Baxter, $3.22 an hour. Do we have to worry about health care? No. Do we have to worry about the length of shift Baxter works? No, 24-7. Do we have to worry about vacation? No. Do we have to worry about the work environment in terms of any kind of nasty chemicals or anything like that? No. Do you kind of understand why we might be moving towards an automated manufacturing environment? What I'm suggesting here, here's the tractor of the future. Bob and I were having this discussion earlier. I think it's a high clearance tractor. You can adjust the track width, you can adjust the height. It's a spark ignition engine. Spark ignition engine, diesel's more efficient, right? We don't care about efficiency of the tractor engine anymore because if I can get the gross vehicle weight down to about 10,000 pounds, I know that I'm gonna increase my production because I'm gonna alleviate compaction. A 7% gain in productivity dwarfs almost everything else, okay? I think the tractor has a life of six or seven cropping seasons. Today when you buy a John Deere R, 
quality tractor, lasts about 20,000 hours. Midwest, you use it 500 hours a year, that means it's gonna be on a farm 40 years. Does it become technically obsolete before we use the mechanical life? Maybe. I'm suggesting maybe we don't need the mechanical life that we have today. We go to spark ignition engines. The other thing is I know that diesel exhaust after treatment, diesel particulate filters, DEF, diesel exhaust fluid. Anybody have to fill up their DEF this fall at harvest? Yeah, and there's a cost for that. It's my understanding the cost of after treatment is approaching the cost of the diesel engine. With spark ignition engines, do we have to worry about that? No. Well, not yet. You've got to remember the EPA was a little bit ahead on spark ignition engines, and the diesels kind of came after that in some respects. Now, we have some high-speed diesels that have some nice characteristics coming, but my point is we've got a multi-fuel engine. We can run it on what? LP gas. We can run it on CNG. We can run it on ethanol, methanol. It's a multi-fueled vehicle. I know that in the state of Ohio for quite some time, the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to have depressed natural gas prices because of fracking. Interesting. Here's what I think the cropping system of the future looks like. By the way, that tractor trailer, maybe that is, uh, maybe that's UPS or any of the other services. When you look at the value of some of these commodities, it's pretty, pretty pricey. Six to seven cropping seasons under 10,000 pounds GVW, 50 to 60 horsepower, reconfigurable for ground clearance and track width, tractors use, utilize spark ignition engine, automation, sensor-rich environment. If I'm using that tractor four rows, four row planter, if you will, I'm using it 24-7, it's going to, each one of those row units is going to cover more acres. I can spend more on the row unit. I can do more in the way of automation, more in the way of sensing. Agricultural data warehouse. I'll try to go through this quickly, but I know that I can't. A lot of companies out there with data warehouses now. Give us your data. Send us your data. Okay? And then we're going to operate on it. We're going to give you back some recommendations of some sort. Maybe match hybrids up with your soil landscape or whatever else. Okay? When you click on I agree, what are you clicking on? What are you agreeing to do? Well, a lot of those companies say that you own your data now, and, and, and I think that's fair, and that's the general wisdom. But the question is you might be licensing your data to them. And when you license your data to them, what are they allowed to do with it? Well, that's in the fine print. It's like a credit card application. We just click yes, okay, and we move on because it takes quite a while to read all that fine print. But one of the things we have to do is we have to get to the point where we understand what's going on at least to know where our data is going, okay? I'm not saying that anybody has any ill intent. I don't think any of them want to control markets. I think what they want to do is provide products and services to you that improve your bottom line. That's my assessment, okay? Oops, sorry about that. What's that? Monsanto? I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm just, I know that when you talk to, to farmers, they get passionate about that top company, and, and I understand that, but, but I also realize that they provided some products that have, have changed weed control in some respects, and so there's been a lot of value, and so I think we have to look at both sides of the coin in some respects. I, we can talk about business practices and reputations and a lot of other things, but I think we have to be careful that we don't overlook where some of the opportunities are too, okay? Um, producer concerns, privacy and security, who has access to my data, limited access to their data contained in proprietary messages. We know that that canned data coming off the tractor, you have access to about 30% of that, 70% of that's in proprietary messages. Now, maybe the companies choose to give you access to that data, but they're not gonna give you the message formats, okay? 
Loss of control once data is uploaded to the cloud, uncertain of how the data will be used. Aggregators of producer data will use it to control markets. I don't think that's the case, but some people believe that. Unlikely to share in the value of the data. You as a producer aren't going to have any value that comes back to you. Government access. Any of you scared about that? Well, I guess if I was applying phosphor and I was phosphorus and I was in that watershed close to Lake Erie in the Western Basin, I might be a little bit leery about things. Um, when I talk about data management, this is the old way. You had the yield monitor in the combine. You had some kind of media. You moved it into your farm office, put it in the PC, maybe uploaded it to the cloud, did your analytics in here. But it depended upon the producer to move it from the machine to the farm office and then to the internet. Today, we got these wireless services that move it directly from the machine. They can move it to the farm office or it could move it to the cloud and then somebody doing your analytics, such as your local cooperative, has access to that data. One of the things that myself and some of my colleagues have been advocating is maybe we need a concept where there's an intermediary that's acting to preserve the interests of the producers. Not that the companies aren't, but we're suggesting a producer-centric third-party data warehouse, okay? Where you as a producer have control of all of your data. Your data's archived there, and you allow anybody you wish to have access to it, and you also control those people that you don't want to have access to it. If at some point down the road, maybe you've been working with Monsanto and you say, gosh, I really want to go use Pioneer, you can do that because all your data is archived there and you can move it to the other company very readily, okay? We're just suggesting where this might go. Um, we're also suggesting maybe perhaps the involvement of universities. Land-grant universities have always acted essentially to be purveyors of unbiased information to producers. I'm not saying they should be the police officers. There's another thing in this whole process that nobody's talking about, and that's the quality of data. Data's going to the cloud, people are doing the data analytics on it, and we're making decisions. Garbage in equals garbage out. And so I'm kind of concerned, I'm not saying that everybody has poor quality data, but there may be more of it going into the cloud than we realize, okay? Universities may help to fill that gap in terms of maybe being part of a data quality certification process. Okay? I'm not saying universities are the solution. I'm just saying having them involved in the process may serve the interests of the producers in some respects. Okay? So, the Ag Data Warehouse or Ag Data Cooperative value to producers. Producers will be in control of the data. Ag Data Warehouse will become a trusted third-party manager of the data. Um, scalable, serves small and large farmers alike. APIs will provide access to proprietary CAN messages if the producers or the manufacturers allow that to happen. Summary data will be made available for benchmarking. You know how you're doing, comparison maybe your neighbors or the people over in the next county. More opportunities to realize value. Accelerated data aggregation really helps industry. And then the Freedom of Information Act, if it's a third party and doesn't involve universities, is no longer a concern. You know, if we got federal money in it, you gotta be careful because anybody that wants access to that data can get it. But if we make it a third party, a data cooperative, something separate from the institutions, academic institutions, we don't have to worry about that. And I'm not suggesting the academic institutions should run a data warehouse. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think they could be involved in the process. AWD valued agribusiness accelerates data aggregation. Certifi uh, certification process will improve the overall quality of data. Ability to share development costs, reduce uh, cost for providing data services to customers. Small data cooperatives, big data cooperatives. They're all kind of on the same footing in some respects. Improve services for clients, reduce liability for data security, and reduce compliance costs.
We'd like to sincerely thank precision agriculture expert Scott Shearer from Ohio State University for sharing the opportunities and challenges ahead for no-tillers as they explore the potential of big data to improve efficiency and profitability on their farm. For those listeners who would like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Scott Shearer, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Doberstein. Thank you for listening.